Hi there. Welcome to the Branch Life Podcast. We're so happy that you tuned in. Please join us today as we continue our series through the book of Matthew. Hey, welcome to Branch Life Church's Seven Days That Changed the World series. This is a series I'm very excited about because it's all about the seven days from Jesus entering Jerusalem to when he died and rose again. These seven days have transformed the world as we know it. And if you join us on this journey, it can transform you too. So we are glad that you're here. We hope that you'll stay to the end. We've got some great information to share with you. And our prayer is that this series will be an encouragement to you. Don't forget to fill out that online connection card before you leave. And again, we're glad you're here. Let's open with a word of prayer. I'm very excited about this morning. We're going to answer some big, heavy-hitting questions, and we're going to meet with God today. So God, as we have gathered together in this place, we hold on to that promise where two or three are gathered, you are there. And so God, we know you are in our midst. So today, we want to feel your presence. We want to know your power. God, we want to hear your voice in these moments. Will you speak to us? Will you meet with us, God? Will you move us closer in our relationship with you today as we open your words? Would you use your words to transform our hearts and our lives? God, to transform our world, to transform our church, to transform our home. God, today we're talking about the day the tables turned and everything changed. And God, that has made this moment and a relationship with you possible for all of us. Amen and amen and amen. So if you have your Bibles, let's open to Matthew chapter 21. Uh, We're going to be in verses 12 through 22. We're going to dip into day two and then give a hint into day three. Now, before we read this passage, there's a technical thing that you need to understand because this entire day takes place in the temple at Jerusalem. Now, for a lot of us, we don't have a concept of that particular facility or even the way Jerusalem looked in Bible times. In Bible times, cities were walled cities. All of the houses were inside the walls for protection. The market was inside the walls. The the businesses were inside the walls. The places of worship were inside the, the walls. Jerusalem was the capital of the nation of Israel. So it was like the number one location for all the Israelites. Therefore, it was the number one location for the worship of God. You see, when the Israelites left Uh, Egypt, when they got into the wilderness, they traveled with them a a portable tabernacle. And that tabernacle housed the presence of God. And it was always in the center of their camp. 
when they got to Jerusalem, when they got their land back, when they built a city, they then built, and you remember Solomon talks all about this massive temple that was made from gold and all this fine, uh, fine minerals and rocks that were brought from all kinds of spectacular places and special kinds of wood. And they built this massively huge temple. And you can kind of start to see the scale of it. There's the little itty bitty people, right? And here's this huge, I mean, it was the largest structure in the city. It was the largest structure in the region. And so when Jesus on day two, day one, remember, he, he had the greatest worship service ever. He did his entry on the donkey. The people shouted, Hosanna, Lord, save us, we pray. They were worshiping him. The whole city, got, they got their attention. On day two, Mark tells us that he came to the temple. And this is where he spends this day and, and parts of day three in this temple. And this is where Jesus has this famous moment of turning the tables. In just a moment, we're going to read this story about Jesus turning the tables. And what happened is Jesus went into this larger court, which is known as the court of Gentiles. The larger court was open to all nations, to all people, and, and to men and to women. And they could come into this larger court. But the way the temple worked was as you got closer to the center, it got more and more selective who could get close to the center of the temple. Because at the center of the temple was a room called the Holy of Holies. And that is literally where the presence of God dwelt. And only the most righteous, the most holy priest on occasion, on special moments during the year, could enter the Holy of Holies. And even in that moment, when a priest would enter the Holy of Holies, he had to have a rope tied around him that led out of the Holy of Holies with little bells. Because if he came into the Holy of Holies unclean, with unconfessed sin, without going through the proper rituals, he would die in the presence of God. And so they would listen for the bells that meant that the priest was doing the burning of incense and what needed to be done. And if the bells would stop, it meant he had died and they would use the rope to pull him out because you couldn't even go into that room without being in the proper position. So it got more and more select as you got closer and closer to the presence of God where the offerings were being given out. Now, in this area of the temple, over time, what had happened is the marketplace had moved to the temple. So there was things that were being sold here. There were certain items that you needed for sacrifice. The second reason people went to the temple, first they went because that's where the presence of God was. The second reason they went to the temple is because that's where they got forgiveness of sins. The temple is where you could make a sacrifice to atone for your sins. It wasn't something you could do apart from being at the temple. So Jews everywhere would come to this temple to make sacrifice for their sins. On a yearly basis, they would make the pilgrimage for their whole family. And depending on your status, you would sacrifice a lamb or a ram or a pigeon or a dove or something along those lines. And you'd have to come. Most people would buy those animals at the, at the market and they would use the coins from their region. And so you couldn't use secular money at the temple. It had graven images on it. So they would have to change their money to temple money. They would have to buy the products for their worship in this courtyard. And Jesus enters into this moment on day two. And let me tell you right now, he had had enough. So in, in Matthew chapter 21... Starting in verse 1, if you have your journals, it's page 110. It says now, and this is on day 2 of his, 
a week before he died. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage and the Mount of Olives, which on this chart, this area above the temple is the Mount of Olives. You could see the whole thing from the mountain. And Jesus sent two disciples uh, uh, say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm reading verse 1. I don't want to be. Um, I want to be reading in verse 12. Excuse me, verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple on day 2. And he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And, and highlight the word drove out, right? How do you do that? <laughs> like, excuse me, you need to leave now, right? No, he drove them out. All who sold and bought in the temple. Then he overturned, you want to circle that one, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold the pigeons, the animals for sacrifice. And he said to them, it is written, in my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Then the blind and the lame came to the temple and he healed them. When the chief priests and scribes saw wonderful things that he did and the children crying in the temple, Hosanna, son of David, they, the chief priests, were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes? Have you prepared praise? And then leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. So that's day two. Let's cheat into day three, verse 18. And in the morning, he returned to the city. He was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went and he found it, but it had no figs, only leaves. So he said to the tree, may no fruit come from you again, and the tree withered at once. Wow. When the disciples saw it, they marveled. How did the tree fig wither? Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and you don't doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even say to the mountains, be taken up and be thrown into the sea, and it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith faith. So in this moment, Jesus does some business in the temple. And it raises, I think, for us three very big, very important, very common questions that we should all know and understand in this moment. Jesus comes in, obviously with power. He's a stranger. He walks into the, the temple. He has no authority, humanly speaking, there. But yet he does drive out the merchants. He drives out the buying and selling. He drives out all the money changers. He overturns those tables. He clears the place. And he says, that's not proper for this place. My house, my house, right? He claims authority. My house will be called a house of prayer. And you've made it a den of robbers. And he was angry. Then he, he heals people, he does ministry, he does miracles. Obviously, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, getting upset at the guy. And then he comes back and he does kind of the same thing with a fig tree. It's just a, a, the, the very next morning. So here's three questions we want to ask ourselves today. Number, question number one, does God get angry? <laughs> does God get angry? And, and does Jesus get mad, right? Like, isn't God love? Isn't he mercy? Isn't he grace? Isn't he forgiveness? And is he also anger? All right, so let's talk about that for a moment. We're also going to ask ourselves the question, where is the house of God today? My house is going to be called a house of prayer. He's standing in this massive courtyard of this massive temple. Where is that house today? What does it look like? What does it mean for us? Are we allowed to change money? How does it work? Does prayer change God? If, if I can pray anything in faith and make God do it, does that make me more powerful than God, right? So we want to try to understand these three things. Now, today, we're going to talk a little, and we're going to pray a lot. 
And so I want us to get to the point where we are just meeting with God because there's some powerful truths here. So let me quickly answer these questions so I can get out of the way and we can just commune with God today. The first question in Matthew chapter 12, does God get angry? I want you to think about this as just kind of a regular no-duh question, right? He has just come. He's overturned the tables. Does God get angry? Yeah, he does. If you read the Old Testament, you see the anger of God on display over and over and over again. Now you see Jesus, who is God in flesh, getting angry. God does get angry. There is a a major part of God's character that allows for anger. What are some of the Old Testament stories that show us God gets angry? Noah and the flood. God got so angry at the world that he flooded it. And he saved one family and two of every kind of animal. Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Two evil, wicked cities that turned their back on God. They were living in debauchery and they were living in full of impurity and they were worshiping false idols. And God got angry at that city and he called down a rain of fire and destroyed both of those cities. Does God get angry? When Moses gave the, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, he came down from the mountain and he found the Israelites worshiping a golden calf. Moses got angry and he slammed down the Ten Commandments. God got angry and he said to that generation that none of them that were worshiping that golden idol would be allowed to enter the promised land, Jerusalem, and all of them would now die in the wilderness and they were punished with 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because they stopped and they worshiped a golden calf instead of worshiping God. Yeah, God gets angry. Now, we have to understand God's anger. Because what we can do is we can now project too much of God's love on our picture vignette of God or too much of God's anger on our picture or vignette of God. And we can become terrified, we can become fearful of God as a dictator or we can become uh, too too much dependent on God as a lover, right? And so we don't want to go off on either side of the spectrum. So let's see what some biblical principles are uh, from Ephesians chapter 4, from James chapter 1, and from Romans chapter 1. There's many others. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give opportunity to the devil. Now what's the principle from this verse? It is possible to be angry and not to sin. So when God and Jesus gets angry, it's not sinful anger. Now we as weak humans, often anger is a gateway to sin. And we can allow our anger to turn us into, to, to make sinful choices, to make, we can blow our temper, we can say things we couldn't say, we can become abusive, we can get bitter, we can get mad, we can get self-reliant. And all of those things are sin. And so we don't want to be angry and sin, we want to be angry and sin not. So like God, God got angry at some really big things, and we're going to talk about that. There are some things in this world that should make us angry. We should get upset at them but we're not, we're not to cross the line into sinning. Second, in James chapter 1, verse 19, it says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Guess what you just got told to do? You just got told to get angry, but get, be slow about it. There are moments where you are going to get angry, but it's not a blowing of the top moment. It's not all of a sudden letting the pressure out and exploding and losing control. It's a slowed control process. To have righteous anger. 
For man's anger does not bring about the righteousness God desires. Now, as men, we have to be very cautious about our anger. Man's anger does not bring the righteousness of God. So there's God's anger and there's man's anger, and they're not necessarily the same thing. We can't equate the way we understand anger to God and assume it's the same thing. Like, if you picture God, like, all of a sudden turning green and growing extra muscles and, and hawk smashing the world, right? Like, that's not how it works. But for so many of us, that's what anger is. That's not God's anger. And so the Bible does a, a really clear job at saying they're two separate things. And finally, in Romans chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What does God get mad at? What does God get upset with? God in the Bible gets upset with sin and evil. That is what God gets angry at. And some examples that we see through Scripture over and over again is God gets upset at, at human violence. He doesn't like it when a husband beats his wife. That makes God very angry, and me too, by the way. He doesn't like it when a big, strong nation beats up on a small, littler nation. That's something that God hates. It makes him angry, and it makes him upset. God hates when there are unjust leaders who go out to get gain for themselves or popularity or fame or riches, and they're going to take advantage of the people that they are serving. And God teaches us over and over and over again, greatness is not being served by the many, right? Greatness is being able to serve many. And so when someone puts themselves at the top of the pyramid, that makes God angry. God gets angry at religious hypocrites. Oh man, does God get angry at religious hypocrites. They start taking these first two things and they start using religion for their own gain. And this is what was happening in the temple. Religious hypocrites. People were using worship. They were using practices for sacrifice. They were using uh, uh, the Ten Commandments. Don't have any graven images. To set up a profitable industry for themselves where they were gaining from the worship of God. Instead of them serving, oh man, watch out. That makes God mad. And all of these things bring us to the kind of the main bottom line thing. God gets mad when we, when we worship idols. When we put anything before him, that's what God, makes God upset. And it leads to all of these bad decisions and all these poor behaviors. And so like, let's just bring it into reality. Like in this, if, if I don't prioritize worshiping together with God's people and I start saying there's other activities, there's other events, there's other places that are more important for my time, for my energy, for my family, and in my relationships, other than gathering with God's people, other than putting God first, you think God's up in heaven going, I'm okay with that? The Bible says that God is a jealous God, that he's an envious God, and that is at the root of his anger. But it's a righteous jealousy that God has. And he gets angry about sin. He gets angry about evil in this world because, man, what has evil and sin done to the world that he created? Of course you'd be mad too. And so when, when we see God and we see evil in the world and we try to ask ourselves, what's, what, what does God think of human trafficking? He's he's despises it what does God think of a, of a drunkard who then comes home and neglects or abandons or abuses his family God seethes in anger with about that what about that person that's that's 
fixing the books and robbing from innocent people, that business owner who's now getting rich on the backs of those that are doing the majority, that God gets angry and upset. And I never want to put myself in the position of receiving the wrath of God, being one of those people who God gives over to their ungodly ways because the wrath of God is massive. The, the wrath of God is painful and the wrath of God is permanent. We live as sinners in the hands of an angry God. Now, how do we balance that with God's love, right? How do we understand the two sides of, this, of the same coin? So we have to ask ourselves the question, what does God love? Well, God loves you and God loves me. God loves you and God loves me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He has this adoration and this love for the world. God loves human generosity. God loves when you generously give to him, when you generously give to the church, when you generously meet the needs of other people. God loves when, when the church and the community comes together to help the refugees who are being pushed out by war and by evil. God loves when we step into those places and in those moments and stand and represent God to feed the orphans, to help the hungry and, and, and the weak. God loves just leaders who serve people well. God loves a righteous pursuit. He loves when you go after godliness and the things of him. God, God adores that and he blesses that and he, he comes alongside you to do that and, and that, that means God loves true worship. In other words, when you put God first, when you worship God and he is at the center of your heart, you then become at the center of God's love. On one side, we have the wrath and anger of God. On the other side, we have the love and grace of God. So here's the best way to understand God's anger and God's love. You ready for it? God gets angry at unrepentant sin. God gets angry at unrepentant sin. But the moment you repent, he pours out his love on you. Think about the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son separated himself from the father and he went to live in the, the dirty ways of the world. And that father stood back home and that father was angry that his money was being used that way. He was angry that his son was wasting his life. He was angry about the consequences that were going to show up. But the moment that that son came back and the moment that that son said, Father, forgive me, he was embraced. The father ran to him and put his arms around him and brought him back into the family of God, giving him the full title of son. That's God's love. So when do you need to fear the anger of God? When you are not sorry for your sin. When do you need to embrace the love of God? The moment you're sorry for your sin. Don't be ashamed of your sin. Don't, don't, don't try to hide your sin. Don't try to, to cover it up and try to avoid God's wrath and avoid his punishment and avoid. No, bring your sin out on the table. The more you bring your brokenness to God, the greater his love is. Remember, the reason the temple existed was so that people could bring their sins to God so the sacrifice could be made and their sins would be forgiven. And God said, I need to make this possible because humanity is evil. Humanity is sinful. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish and have everlasting life. In other words, Jesus is the one who stands at the intersection of God's love, his perfect love, and God's righteous anger. 
Jesus is the one who solves the problem of sin and wrath. God sent a, a prophet named Jonah to an evil city named Nineveh. Nineveh was like the modern-day Sodom and Gomorrah. They were out killing God's people, and they were unjust leaders. They were robbing to make themselves great. They were idol worshipers. And Jonah comes to these people, and after a short taxi ride and a whale, he shows up into this town, and he starts saying to the people, repent, because the, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, or you will be judged. Repent, or the wrath of God will come down on you. And Nineveh deserved the wrath of God, yet they repented. And God spared them. God allowed them to live. God rescued them. And Jonah said, this is not fair. They deserve to die. They deserve judgment for their wickedness. Yet God poured out grace. Why? Because they repented. Hell is a real place. Hell exists because of the wrath of God. Hell is created for those who do not repent for their sins because God is an angry God. But nobody has to go to hell because Jesus stands at the center of God's love and anger. You see, God gave his son to satisfy his wrath, his righteous wrath. And to demonstrate his love so that you would have your sins forgiven. If you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. His righteousness is now credited to you. No longer do we have to sacrifice a lamb or a pigeon or a dove. Because Jesus is the once and done sacrifice for all. Forgiveness is readily available for you. And God's righteous anger, God's wrath was poured out on his son so it doesn't have to be poured out for you. And because of God's love, heaven is real. Because of God's love, you can spend eternity with him in new heaven and new earth. Because of God's love, you can have a place at the side of Jesus Christ in the presence of God for all eternity, you and your family and your family's family and your neighbor and your community because all are welcome through the cross of Jesus. Because God hates sin, but God loves you and me. If you're here today and you've never repented, you've never said, God, I'm sorry for my sin. I want to turn from that. I want to follow you. God, I, I need to be saved by you. I need you to forgive my sins. I can't forgive them. There's no sacrifice you can make to absolve yourself of your sins. There's no, there's no confession you can have apart from going to the cross of Jesus. If today you're ready to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, we want to invite you to do that in this moment. Simply bow your head or bow your heart and say to God, I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me for my sins. I repent. I believe Jesus came and died on the cross for me and he rose again from the dead. And I want to accept the free gift of salvation. And the Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. We don't want to be sinners in the hands of an angry God. We want to be sons and daughters in the hand of a loving God. Today, join the family of God. Now, as Jesus demonstrates his righteous anger and we learn more about this, we ask ourselves the second question. Where is the house of the Lord today? Right? Right? So in, in, in Matthew chapter 21, right, uh, he 
tears out the money changers, and then he says, he said to them, it is written, my house will be called the house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, here's what happens in most, most circles today. We, we take this sentence about the house of the Lord, we even write songs about it, we even sing them here at Branch Life Church, and we say the house of the Lord, as they're talking about the temple of God, now equals the church building. And, and now there are rules from this passage that we have to apply to our church building because God, Jesus, obviously didn't like money changers. He didn't like making profit. He didn't like, like selling worshipful things. So at your church building, you cannot sell things. You, you, can't, you have to be very formal. You have to go to church to meet God. You have to go to church to get your sins forgiven. And there's all these rules, and, and you're going to now be in the presence of God. And, and so we start taking all of this stuff, and then it says, it has to be a house of prayer, so you better be praying at the church. That better be happening, and by the way, I don't think you're praying enough. I think you're doing too much talking, or you're doing too much singing, or you're doing too much youth group stuff, and, and you should just do more prayer, because my house is supposed to be a house of prayer, and so how do, we, how do we take this and we understand this? Well, I think this question better be asked, right? Where is the house of the Lord today? Because this is the day, day two, that the tables turn. Literally, Jesus is making not only a literal change, there's a, there's a spiritual, theological change that's happening, and the table is turning. And in just a few days, Jesus is going to die on the cross. And what happens when Jesus dies on the cross, the Bible tells us that the curtain that's at the Holy of Holies, that the priest had to go through with the bells and the rope on, when, that, when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain tore in two, this massively big curtain tore in two demonstrating that the presence of God was no longer confined to the Holy of Holies in the midst of the temple. In that moment, God was saying that the temple is no longer necessary for the presence of God. The book of Hebrews starts telling us that he has made a more permanent, a better temple, a better place for the Spirit of God to dwell. And so the, the New Testament now teaches a new teaching. We don't confine God to a tabernacle. We don't confine God to a temple any longer. No. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and the Spirit of God dwells in you? You are the temple of the Holy Ghost. As a matter of fact, at Pentecost, when they gathered in the upper room after Jesus has ascended on earth, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit ascended on the, all of those who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus. And the Holy Spirit now entered into the bodies, into the hearts of those that followed Jesus. His literal presence is now in the hearts of every believer when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you did it now, if you do it watching online, it means that the Holy Spirit is now moving in and he's taken residence in your heart because God has cleansed your heart and God through the blood of Jesus has made your heart the holy of holies. It is now clean from sin. It is now pure white and the, ho the holy God can now take residence inside of you. You see the two purposes of the temple, to house the presence of God and to offer forgiveness of sin, now takes place inside of you. God is always present with you. Amen? You never have to be alone. There's never a circumstance or a situation where you are by yourself. There's, there's always a God, Hebrews tells us, 
who is our high priest, who sits in solidarity with us and is able to sympathize with us in every way possible. He comes alongside us when it hurts. He comes alongside us when we're sick. He comes alongside us when we're sinning. The God of the universe now walks with you when you have him. He talks with you. He meets with you. He is living and residing inside of you. There is no longer a human temple where God lives. Where is the temple or the house of God today? It's inside of each and every one of us. In him, also, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. That's why when two or three are gathered in his name, he is present. Has nothing to do with the walls and the floors of a worship center or a campus or a building with a steeple. This place is no temple. This is a tool that allows us to gather together and minister to one another and our community. My people shall be called a people of prayer. You see, when God said the house of the Lord shall be a house of prayer, that now transfers to this new reality. If you are the house of the Lord, that means you are supposed to be a people of prayer. When he gives this commandment, we don't have to come to a building to pray. We're supposed to pray all the time. God is calling us into a posture and position of prayer. So at Branch Life Church, how do we pray? How are we a people? How are we a church that prays? There's all kinds of ways that we include prayer very intentionally at the ministries of Branch Life Church. First of all, and for those of you that have been on our our prayer team since 2018, we've had these seven long-term prayer requests that we have prayed for now over three years. And, and God is answering these prayers in spectacular ways. Open hearts to the gospel. Yes, people have gotten saved even in the last couple of weeks. Your individual role in, in, in building Branch Life Church, when you give, when you serve, when you pray, praying about the multiplication of disciples and leaders, Chris is being multiplied, Alex is being multiplied, group leaders are being multiplied, servers are being multiplied, churches are being multiplied, the spiritual protection for all of us is a spiritual battle, unity for all of us, positive relations with our communities and our leaders, man, oh man, has God answered that prayer. Sometimes I I just am in awe at what happens when a community leader comes to Branch Life Church and says, guys, we want you to partner with us. And I go, why in the world would you do that? Why? How is that happening? This doesn't happen. Oh yeah, we've been praying about it for three years. It's totally happening because of prayer. And then we ask for provision for, God, for financial and facility needs. It's why we're sitting in this building today. It's because of these prayers. This building that was given to Branch Life Church for free. You see, prayer, it, it does powerful things when we are a people of prayer. And so we have our prayer first journals that we get in every single one of your hands and we ask you to be praying every day to be a people of prayer. We've, we've been building in a thousand person prayer team that gets an email twice a month and they're all over the world, people that are praying for us. Uh, for, for our prayer request of, of expanding and growing and building this church. We have a Sunday prayer team that Chris is now leading that meets in the back room. Right now, there's people praying for you and for us, and we want you to jump in and be a part of that. We have a, our groups that all center around this pattern of prayer when you get together to pray for one another. We pray in those moments all the time as our group. Some of our most powerful times of prayer are with your group. And then we, ha- we have a community group that meets at our Branch Life house every Thursday morning for moms from schools, 
So the community is invited to come here and to pray and to be a people of prayer for our schools. And now, right now, there's five or six or seven moms who are here every Thursday morning praying. You can do that if you want. And in just a couple of days, we're going to kick off 28 days of prayer. We're going to have prayer and fasting that's going to take us from 28 days. It's happening on March 20th is the start. And it's going all the way to Easter. We're asking as a church that we would each individually have this time of prayer where we do special things together and then individually. We have moments of fasting, moments of celebration, and moments of prayer. And I'm super excited that God will lead us to this Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday being our one-year anniversary of meeting in this worship center. Easter Sunday, the day where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where lives can be changed, where most people in the community are looking to worship God on that day. We are excited to have these 28 days of prayer, and we're going to start it off with a prayer, a, a night of prayer and worship. So Sunday night in this room at 5 p.m., we're going to worship and pray together. You're all invited on March 20th. We're going to have a prayer breakfast on April 9th. Everybody's invited to come and pray. We're going to have a Good Friday communion service the Friday before Easter. We're going to bow and confess and go to God in communion. And then we're going to celebrate together on Easter Sunday. So stay tuned. So that, Why are we doing that? So that we as a church can be a people of prayer. My people will be a people of prayer. Now the final question, and we want to spend some time praying, is simply this. Does, God, does prayer change God? If God is all-powerful and God is all-knowing, why would he listen to me? Why would he take my requests into account? Why would he take my perspective into account? Why would he take my limited knowledge and I shouldn't even bother to pray? He says in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 22, to the disciples, as they saw him, have power over nature. If you have faith and you do not doubt, you will not only be able to do what is done to this fig tree. Remember, he... He told the fig tree to die, it died. But even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and be thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have asked in faith. Does prayer change God? Some people say, no, 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 prayer doesn't change God, it changes me. And I, I get the sentiment of that. I understand that, and smarter people than me have kind of figured out the theology behind that. But when I read this point, I read something that says God takes our prayers into account. Our prayers matter to God. They're a sweet fragrance to his throne. And in his divine planning, he somehow has taken the prayers that we've prayed, and he's brought them into account. So let me explain it this way. When we pray, we are inviting the presence of God into our circumstances. You, in prayer, invite God into your home. You invite God into your marriage. You invite God into your pain. You invite God into your school. You invite God into your church. When you invite God into your nation, into your community, into that war, you invite the presence of God who now will invade that moment, that circumstance, and that situation. And there is nothing greater than the presence of God. 
There's nothing more powerful, there's nothing more awe-inspiring than knowing that God is present in my brokenness and God is present in my marriage and God is present in my faith. God is present in my doubts. God is present in my questions. God is present in my worship. God is present in my neighborhood. God is present and it changes everything because prayer invites the presence of God into our circumstance. Prayer changes everything. So is God more present in a church that prays than he is in a church that doesn't pray? You better believe he is. The more you pray, the more God is present in your home. That's right. Because the less I pray, the more I depend on myself. The more I depend on my power. The more I pray, the more I depend on God. I invite his presence and I recognize that he is there and it's his power that's going to move us. So let's pray. Let's pray and fall on our faces before God. Let's pray and worship him through songs. Let's talk to him through Psalms 46. Let's, let's beg him to intervene in our world, in our church, and in our homes. And let's invite the presence of God into our circumstances even now. I want to invite our worship team to come up. They're going to lead us through a season of prayer. It's going to last us about 10 minutes. We're going to invite you to pray to God however you'd like. And maybe for you, it simply just means you're going to worship through this song and you're going to talk to God through the words of the song. Maybe you're just going to listen. Maybe you're going to pray as we are led. Maybe you're going to stand and sing. Maybe you want to kneel where you're at. Maybe you just want to stay seated and contemplate. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray three times during this song. We're going to start off by praying for our world. I'm going to ask Chris to do that and lead us in the prayer for our world. They're massively Huge, awful things happening in Ukraine right now. We need to pray over that as a church. We need to pray about what's happening in our world. So we want to do that together. Then we'll worship a little bit, and then we'll pause, and then I'm going to ask Tyler Brenner if he would lead us in a prayer for our church. Listen, God's doing incredible things through Branch Life Church and through his church around the world. Let's pray for that. Let's pray for his presence, that God would do greater things, that he would give us wisdom, that he would show himself, and that we as a church would be a church that prays. And then we'll sing a little bit, and right before we close, we're going to give you an opportunity to pray about whatever it is that's going on in your circumstance, in your life. Maybe you're in here today and you're lonely. Maybe you're hurting. Maybe you're in pain. Maybe there's sickness happening. Maybe you're lost or confused or you need wisdom. Maybe you're celebrating and you're excited and you just are, are marking a big anniversary. Whatever it is, we want to ask you to bring that quietly to God. And this, in this moment, is recognizing that the power of God is here when the presence of God is here. We are standing and sitting and worshiping and talking to a God who is here now with us in all his greatness and is all, all his glory. Let's pray. Would you join me in praying for our world? Heavenly Father, King Jesus, Holy Spirit, Blessed Trinity, we know that you created the heavens and the earth. And we know that when sin entered into the world, it broke. And now there is evil, now there is injustice, and things are not the way that it's supposed to be. But Jesus, you came 
And you gave us the message of salvation. And now we have hope for the world. We have light for the world. And Jesus, you said that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord of the harvest. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray to you now. Send more workers into the harvest of this world. Send more believers into this world to share your message, Jesus, the message of salvation. Use us to share your love and your peace and your light into this dark and broken world. We pray for the leaders of this world. We pray that they would act justly and mercifully. That they would stamp out evil and injustice wherever it might be in this world. Jesus, I pray that you would raise up men and women, even right here in Branch Life Church, to go to the loss of this world, to the regions of this world where there are no believers, where there are no churches, where even if someone wants to know about Jesus, they don't have access to him. I pray that we would go and we would bring your word and we would bring your message of salvation. And we would see every tongue, every tribe, every nation worshiping you, proclaiming how good you are, Jesus, and how you have the power to change every country. You have the power to change every culture. You have the power to stamp out injustice when people call upon your name and pray. And we want to uplift our brothers and sisters in Ukraine right now. We want to pray for the church of Ukraine. The enemy wants to stamp them out. And so we pray for your protection. We pray against the thief. We pray against Satan and his kingdom who wants to steal and kill and destroy the believers in Ukraine. Jesus, we ask you, protect your bride, protect your church in Ukraine. Heavenly Father, take whatever the enemy meant for evil and turn it for good in the church in Ukraine. Open up doors and opportunities for there to be an explosion of Christianity in Ukraine because of what's going on. And we pray for the families who are suffering right now. We pray for the fathers and the mothers and the children who are being separated right now. Fill them with your love. Fill them with your peace. Fill them with your comfort. And reveal to us here at Branch Life Church all the ways that we can pray for them, all the ways that we can support them, sacrifice for them, and love our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and all across the world. God, glorify yourself in the world and use us. Glorify yourself through our lives. Make Branch Life Church a source of glory for you in the world and raise up disciples who want to make disciples in all the nations of the world. We ask for this in your mighty and powerful name, Jesus. Amen.